A new report has warned governments are still making decisions that exacerbate disadvantage for Indigenous Australians. It comes three years after a landmark national agreement on closing the gap. The Productivity Commission's first review of the agreement has found some governments continue to make choices that disregard or contradict their commitments. It comes as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese reveals the date in which Australians will be asked to decide whether to recognise First Nations people in the Constitution through an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Auntie Pat Turner is someone who I personally admire. An Aranta and Gadanji woman born and raised in Alice Springs, she's been at the forefront of efforts to advance Indigenous affairs for almost half a century. As the chair of Coalition of Peaks, Aunty Pat is well placed to give us an insight into the current political landscape and how best to address issues of Indigenous disadvantage. Aunty Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, you were at the big announcement in Adelaide for the date of the referendum. What was the atmosphere like? Well, it was electrifying. It was great. Everyone was so excited. The positivity was just bouncing around. So it was really a very energetic and positive launch of or announcement of the date of the referendum, which, of course, is the 14th of October, which is not very far and a lot of uh, work to do between now and then to sway all those undecided voters that it would be sensible to cast a yes vote. So, Ani Pat, that next six weeks, there was, as you mentioned, a lot of energy and um, excitement at the announcement. There is a lot of ground to cover in the next six weeks. From your perspective and where you're sitting, what will those next six weeks look like? What needs to happen? Well, I would like those undecided voters to really open their minds to the messaging that's going to come from the Yes campaign. Of course, I'm a great supporter of The Voice. I think there'll be real strength in us uh, having that and the recognition, of course, of our 65-year, 1,000-year occupation and, uh, and living in this country. And I think that it will show our maturity as a, as a nation. So that's what I'm hoping uh, People will open their minds to our messaging and will support us uh, on the 14th of October. Now, of course, you are the CEO of our huge peak in the health sector and the chair of the Coalition of Peaks. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've had over 50 years of working at the coalface. I think people would be really interested to hear from you, Arnie Pat, about what you think a voice to parliament will do to improve relations, particularly between the government and First Nations people. That has been a claim that has been made, but from where you sit, you would be well placed to judge that. So what's your view on that? Well, I agree that The Voice will be there to give advice to the Australian Parliament. And, of course, it can advise the government and the executive. So I think that it's a matter for The Voice to make sure that they bring the critical priority areas to the attention of government. And uh, government, of course and uh, parliamentarians will have their own legislation. Primarily, that'll be brought forward by government members and having our perspective on those matters that directly impact on our peoples will just add to the richness, I think, uh, of the legislation because it should improve 
what the government wants to do. So advice on the legislation is going to be really important. Only Pat, one of the things that we um, have heard as we've spoken to people about this issue, whether wherever they sit on the question, is the observation that this has actually become, you know, quite a difficult space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, partly because of the level of um, racism that we're seeing, particularly in social media, um, people that are expressing um, views particularly in favour of the referendum are getting trolled. From your perspective, um, as somebody who works in the health sector, who has been very um, concerned about First Nations wellbeing, um, have you been shocked by this? And what can First Nations people and our supporters do as, as this environment um, becomes uh, so heated? Well, I think it's really sad and a sad reflection on our country that there is so much negative uh, trolling by naysayers. I think it is not an indication of the Australia that we really do know, which I think is much more concerned about fairness and, and equity. So I think it's a fringe group that are using their networks to promote this negativity. Any one of our people who is impacted by it and feels uh, vulnerable should immediately seek professional help. Through our community controlled health services, please go and speak to one of our health professionals and make sure that you are okay. You know, personally, I ignore it. Um, but I can't say that that's too easy for some of our people to do, especially if they're being trolled um, or their family members are being trolled. But I think it's a deliberate tactic to undermine the confidence of our people and our leaders. So we should just get on with standing up for what is right. And I believe that voting yes in the referendum is the right thing to do, not only for uh, what we have ahead of us right away, but for future generations as well. So having lived here and and our ancestors, you know, uh, 65,000 years minimum or forever, as a lot of our people care to put it, um, I think that uh, it's about time we were recognised in the Australian Constitution and we have the voice uh, that will stand in perpetuity, if you like, as long as the Constitution remains unchanged after the yes vote. Unlike every other uh, apparatus, if you like, that uh, the Commonwealth has put in place, supposedly for the benefit of Aboriginal people, that has largely, well, have all been abolished at the stroke of a pen or at the political whim of the new party after an election. And uh, all of that chopping and changing on electoral cycles is no good and, uh, and we need to have some firm, ongoing presence to ensure that government is responding to the real needs of our people. You were the CEO of ATSIC and are now the chair both of our, as I mentioned, our our major community controlled 
um, health, health organisation, which is one of our key community controlled organisations uh, spaces, and uh, the chair of the Coalition of Peaks. So the argument that's put forward that says that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, when they are engaged in the policy making delivers better results. What is the evidence that you've seen given this long history of practical work in this field that supports that statement that says uh, that when you listen to First Nations people or we're involved in policy making that actually does make a difference? Well, the best example I can give you of recent times, but, you know, we do it all the time in working in close partnership with the Minister and the Minister for Health at the national level and his department. So our joint work on COVID-19 was probably the most illustrative example and world's best practice, actually, of governments listening and working in true partnership with us. So we estimated uh, we'd lose, you know, some 2,000 lives to COVID uh, when it hit. Rather, we lost... Uh, 235 people, and we're very saddened about that. But when you compare that to the Navajo, similar population size, they didn't mobilise their health services in conjunction with other health authorities like we did. They didn't mobilise that in the United States, and they lost 2,000 Navajo to covid and they have very similar health conditions uh, and living conditions to our people. So that's an immediate contrast on how the Australian government worked in absolute sync, in full partnership with us, took on board our advice, responded by providing us the resources to support our 145 member services around Australia, and together because we asked the government to set up a joint management approach and they did. So, you know, I'm very proud of the work that uh, the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector did to stop the deaths from COVID when it hit. But one of the points I do want to make, Larissa, about The Voice, as I reflect on the public debate, there is no one, no one, I repeat disagreeing that our voices should not be central to the decisions of government that are mostly about us. So everyone accepts that. The naysayers accept it. Obviously, you know, the governments accept it. It's reflected in the national agreement on closing the gap where the first priority reform is about shared decision-making between our people and government representatives. So no one has disagreed that our voices should not be heard on those matters that impact on us, which is a a point that I think people miss too easily overlook that. And it's sad, really, because it it just feeds all of that misinformation, uh, unfortunately. Aunty Pat, you mentioned, of course, the uh, example of the response to COVID as a kind of uh, best example. The Productivity Commission's recent report sets out its 
findings and recommendations of areas for improvement and emphasising that more effort is needed to close the gap. What was your response to that report? Yes, well, the Productivity Commission report is looking at how the national agreement is being implemented. The Coalition of Peaks expected their report because we've been saying it from the start that all governments need to improve their efforts and lift their game uh, with respect to implementing the commitments they've already signed up to under the national agreement. You know, it requires a huge shift in the way governments work with our people and our communities. And, you know, it's a slow-moving beast, the bureaucracy. Nevertheless, it's three years down the track and uh, and the Productivity Commission draft report could not have made it clearer. And uh, they had very extensive consultations. They All of the parties to the National Agreement now have an opportunity to get feedback to the Productivity Commission before they release their final report uh, on the National Agreement by the end of the year. It's up to those governments who have got better examples of good practice on implementing the National Agreement to provide those and make sure that they are able to have them published by the Productivity Commission. So far, the key messages from the draft report were that there is some evidence that governments demonstrate an ability or willingness to partner in shared decision-making, but there's no change occurring and that accountability is limited and progress is falling short of envisaged expectations. Did any of these um, preliminary findings surprise you, Arnie Pat? No, uh, because I've been saying exactly the same thing to governments as I've been uh, moving around meeting with state and territory cabinets and I've only got two left and, of course, the National Cabinet earlier this year. So they had fair warning from me and then, of course, the Productivity Commission, which is an independent uh, agency, has really reinforced what I've been saying. And the coalition, I only speak for the ADP because I don't speak for myself. So it's no surprise to any of us in the coalition of peaks. So the governments really just have to improve their implementation of the full priority reforms in the main. This is um, obviously a space where the federal government has a a big role to play and gets a lot of attention. But as you rightly point out, uh, state governments and territory governments are responsible as well for some of these key areas. We're talking about health, you could say that about education. We talk a lot about child the child protection issue, uh, criminal justice issues, etc. From what you're seeing as you go around and talk to different states about the importance of closing the gap and this agreement, what is the response that you get? Is there a sense that people are wanting to work together and it's not possible? Or is it the fact that each of the states is kind of their own world and so it's actually quite hard to get that kind of um, coalition of states and the federal government working in the same way? Well, you know, where we've seen pockets of change, which we have, as the report acknowledged, and things are being done in partnership, we've seen some real change. So, 
you know, I'm particularly happy with the work that Snake's been doing with Social Security and improving the space for families and children. So it's really important that our organisations have agency when they share in the decisions that uh, impact on them and the people that they provide the services to. So where our organisations have also been better supported to provide the services, we've seen an improved uptake in service delivery, but we have not seen the whole-scale implementation across all departments and the leadership uh, that's needed from each cabinet. So we believe that priority reform should be embedded into the decision-making processes of government, and this means that every First Minister and Treasurer should be asking their Cabinet Ministers how the priority reforms have been implemented when a new policy proposal is being brought forward, and a decision should not be made unless uh, they have been. And we need to see funding guidelines and processes change to reflect the priority reforms. So every single area of government needs to stop, examine their current approaches and align their business fully with what's provided for in the national agreement. Only Pat, one of the other areas that I think is part of this whole ecology really of, of policy making and uh, service delivery is of course the public service. And I'm reminded because I've known you for so many years that one of the things that you really championed because you were, you know, a bit of a trailblazer within the public service when you came in, but you then were definitely breaking down barriers as the CEO of ATSIC and your role in running the in Centrelink. And, you know, you've been the highest First Nations bureaucrat at different times. I mean, you're in a different sector now, but you really paved the way. And, and during that time, you had a real emphasis on trying to build the capacity, particularly through ATSIC, of the number of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people that were working in the bureaucracy. As you go around the country and you are working with departments and you're working nationally, what's been your reflection on um, how that's gone? What are the barriers? What would you like to see? And what have been some of the successes? Because it was a very important piece of, of all of the uh, parts of the puzzle that you identified fairly early on as, as a place where we needed a lot more First Nations presence. Um I haven't seen any other uh, agency do what I did when I was CEO of ATSIC and that was provide 10 scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island staff to do their undergraduate degrees at university. So that was 40 ATSIC uh, First Nations staff who went off to get their undergraduate degrees. There is now a program for postgraduate students to be supported by their departments and, and ironically that's through the Pat Turner Scholarship run by the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. We've had a nice swag of uh, postgraduate students come through that. My take on it runs hot and cold across the public service and I reckon that you know, they slackened off a lot over the last 10 years and now they've got to get their skates on and and get moving again on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recruitment and opportunities. So everyone's scuttling for staff now, but had they stayed true to continuing their efforts to 
ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people got an opportunity to work in the public sector across the board, not just in Aboriginal affairs, uh, then they wouldn't be scrambling like they are now. So I'm pretty disappointed with the way the services handled the employment of our people. And I haven't seen much better in the states and territories, quite frankly, certainly not in leadership positions. Arnie, Pat, no doubt you're going to be even more busy than you usually are over the next six weeks with so many more demands on your time. But I hope that we can stick with our usual speaking out tradition of having you on our last show of the year for Arnie Pat's year in review, because uh, there's there'll be a lot to talk about. And of course, today we haven't even discussed things happening overseas. So um, I hope that you can come back uh, later in the year and uh, do have the the final say. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Larissa. Much appreciated. Thank you, Arnie Pat, and thank you for all the work you do. Thank you. That's Arnie Pat Turner, CEO of Nacho, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and CEO of the Coalition of Peaks. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.